0: Good morning, amen. He is a good, good father to us, is he not? And hey, listen, we've got a lot to get through this morning in Paul's line of thinking as he continues on to his letter to the Galatian church and those other churches that this letter has passed around to in Asia Minor. So if we can just jump right into the reading of the text and then prayer, we'll get started. So Galatians 2, 11 through 21, if you have your Bible, if not, we have it on the screen for you. You can follow along with me. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. Because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, meaning Peter, and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? And this is interesting because Paul now shifts and he's speaking directly to Peter. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified, and hang on to that word justified, by works of the law but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not or may it never be. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. Verse 19, for through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God verse 20. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. And here's the beauty and the crux of this justification passage. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And we know that the gospel of Jesus Christ was for no purpose. Let's pray. King Jesus, we love you, and we submit our hearts right now to the authority of your word. Lord, would you just use me, please, as a microphone by the Holy Spirit to preach the text truthfully, honestly, with grace, with passion, and Lord, may your word be heard and received as it is written. And King Jesus, if there's anything that comes from my mouth, Holy Spirit, would you please eliminate from the hearts and the minds of men that does not line up with the truth according to the gospel. Lord, we love you, we thank you, and we are so grateful that we live in a place and a time that we can gather around the sufficiency of the word of God to preach to our souls, to let us understand our identities as people and as children of God as we await your return to take us home to the place where you have prepared for us. And we wait eagerly for that. But in the midst of this, Lord, may your word form and shape and fashion our hearts to your will. We love you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. So this morning, if I had to give this sermon a title, it would be of freedom and fire and how grace sets the captive heart ablaze. And there's one central theme in this entire thing that I want you to walk away with. If I were to sum up the entire book of Galatians, it's this. It's that Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus nothing equals equals everything you see martin luther understood something about this and martin luther was a man who was set ablaze by the justification and the work of christ for himself but he was not always in this position luther was a man who was tormented by god as a catholic priest he would fulfill the pulpit he would preach the pulpit and every day in every way he would either say to his wife or would say to the others how can i love this god that i hate so much He'd become so snowed under by the, 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 the obligatory tithing, by the rote memorization, by the, the, the absolute just rote liturgy of the Catholic Church. The, 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 everything that they, they burned people with, Martin Luther found in of himself that this God that the Catholic Church preached was something that he utterly hated. And so he was telling his mentor this, his cardinal this, and basically his, his leadership said this. It said, Martin, we can't keep you in the pulpit at this moment. We've got to put you somewhere. We've got to do something with you in order for your heart to get in the right place. So they stuck him in the archives working on interpreting Scripture through the original language of Greek. At the time... What the Catholic Church had done has translated everything into the Latin Vulgate, did not give it to the people like we have with the Word of God today, that we have it for the people because the Word of God is for the people of God. And yet they had so snowed under Luther, under this, that when he returns to the archives, when he returns to the original language, he lands on this little book called Romans, and he is absolutely set afire and ablaze by this one statement. That the righteous shall live by faith and justification comes through faith and faith alone. Grace comes through faith and faith alone. And it absolutely set Martin Luther on fire. Paul's understanding of justification is the entire reason why we are here today. Because of Luther's rejection of the 95 theses to the Catholic Church, that grace is free, grace and grace alone will rule the day, and it's justification alone, by grace alone, through faith alone, for the glory of God alone, by the power of the scriptures alone. Now that is a man whose heart has been set ablaze by grace, because Luther understood this one thing, Jesus plus nothing equals everything. It equals everything. Listen to me. My goal and my aim this morning is that you would so delight in grace and grace alone as the only Christian method that like Martin Luther, your heart would be set ablaze for the glory of the King Jesus. And I would dare say that as we look at Galatians 11 through 21, this is Paul's aim and goal that we would understand that the only Christian method is Jesus plus nothing, Jesus minus nothing, Jesus is everything. That is the goal. You see, Paul understands this, and all of Paul's writings are summed up in this statement, guys. This statement. Orthodoxy, or what we believe, should always inform our orthopraxy, or how we should live. If you look at all of Paul's writings, Galatians is no different. All of Paul is summed up in this statement. How we, what we believe... What the gospel says about us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, how God the Father views us in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and how he has sealed us with his Holy Spirit should inform how we live as Christians, and that is an absolute and utter freedom from the yoke of the law. Now, it is not the fact that Jesus did not come to abolish the law. Matthew five seventeen is clear. Jesus came to fulfill the law. But the true gospel message is this. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus as our only saving source of salvation, it must remain intact. Listen to me. The crucifixion of Jesus without the resurrection is just another story of a random man who was put to death for his claim to be a God. And the resurrection of Jesus without crucifixion of Jesus means that we do not have a substitute and we are still bound to two things. Sin and the law. The law reveals sin in us. It crushes us. The law reveals the absolute crushing perfection of God the Father. His holiness, His righteousness, how He was completely other. And in that we see our sin we see his holiness and we say I can't measure up I'll never keep it in all of its perfection you are too good you are too holy and I am because of that and I see my depravity I understand my condemnation and it is just Romans 1 is clear there is no one there's no one righteous there's not one not one of us are righteous And the beauty of the resurrection is this, is that the resurrection of Jesus is the evidence that God fully accepted the act of Jesus as our substitute. You see, in the gospel, this is what Paul understood and subsequently what Luther understood. There's a double thing that happens in the gospel. At the death of Jesus, Jesus got all of your sin. At the resurrection of Jesus, you got all of his righteousness. Every bit of it. And that story and that message alone set Paul ablaze and it set Luther ablaze. So remember that this orthodoxy, how we believe and what we believe should inform how we live is going to move us along in Galatians 2. So in Galatians 2 we are to the point where Paul has defended his apostleship, okay? He has gone to the Jerusalem council and gotten in the right hand of fellowship from the pillars of the Christian church, from the pillars of the early church in Jerusalem, from Peter, John, James. They extended him the right hand of fellowship and they were on board with this purity of this gospel message that so much to the fact that they did not require Titus to submit to ceremonial eating laws or for Titus to be circumcised. So now we fast forward and Paul is going to use Peter as an illustration. He's already called out what he would refer to later on because this is a consistent and constant battle that Paul has with these Judaizer brothers. These ones who would say gospel plus, gospel plus ceremonial food law, gospel plus circumcision are the means of salvation. Paul will go so battle, so much of a battle with these individuals that by the time he writes Philippians, he refers to them as Peter and all of the other Judaizers pre-conversion used to refer to the Gentiles as the dogs, those Gentile dogs. Paul will now reserve for those those Judaizers who accept gospel plus. He will refer to them in Philippians as the dogs of the false circumcision. They are the dogs of the false circumcision. So he takes that phrase of the Gentile dogs and he flips it back on the head of the people of God because they've gotten all this whole thing out of whack. So now Paul is going to use Peter as an illustration and he is going to move us through this book now where we see how we believe and what we believe must inform how we live. Read with me in Galatians to 11 through fourteen. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas, who was on these missionary journeys with Paul, was led astray by, his, by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas, who is Peter, before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force Gentiles to live like Jews? The reason why Paul calls Peter out in an illustration format before he moves on to break down the full crux and the full weight of justification by faith through grace is twofold. So as Peter is a pillar of the early church, an apostle of Jesus, and a key leader of the early Christian movement, it was imperative that Paul would place Peter's hypocrisy on display to defend the true gospel. Okay? Secondly, as Peter is a pillar of the early church, as an apostle of Jesus, and a key leader of the Jerusalem church, it was imperative for Paul to confront and rebuke Peter to undermine these false brothers from Jerusalem who were looking to add to the reality of the pure gospel. Remember, these were guys who came from Jerusalem and said, well, you've got Paul, and Paul's pretty good. But let's be honest, we're from Jerusalem. We're from the guys who actually established and lead the church. We're from the guys who those dudes were the ones who actually saw Jesus face to face. And this is the message we're bringing to you you got to be circumcised. you got to observe the Jewish laws of ceremonial eating. It's really funny because Paul doesn't even mess with those, those cats. I'm not interested in you. I'm not interested in you and your small-minded gospel. I'm going to subsequently defend my apostleship as one who has seen Jesus and spent time with Jesus and defend the truth of the gospel, and I'm going to take Peter on face to face. Is there anyone more inflappable than Paul? Persecutes the church. God knocks him down off his horse on the road to Damascus, blinds him, goes and sees, has the, the scales, falls his eyes. God says, hey, listen, you're going to suffer a lot for my namesake. Paul's like, bring it on. I've been shipwrecked. I've been beaten. I've been left near dead. I've been thrown in prison. I've been beaten in prison. I've been snake bitten. I've been sick in famine and everything. And Paul continues to get up and preach the truth of the gospel that the grace of God is the only sufficient manner by which the Christian should live. And now he is taking on the pillar, one of the pillars, the very confession of this church on which I will build my church, the rock himself, Peter. And he absolutely dismantled Peter's hypocrisy. You see, this is so loaded, this passage where it talks about how Peter withdrew from his Gentile brothers. You see, in the Jerusalem council, as discussed earlier in in, in Galatians 2, Peter had already extended the right hand of fellowship to Paul. And this was largely based off a vision that Peter had received in Acts chapter 10, which we went through earlier this summer. Peter receives a vision of a sheet that comes down with a bunch of four and, and hooved animals that were ceremonially unclean for Jews to eat. And in the vision, God says, Peter, Peter, eat. And Peter says, no, Lord, I've never eaten anything unclean. I'll never have my lips touch anything unclean. I will not be a part of an unclean people. And the Lord says, Peter, eat. For what you consider unclean, I have cleaned. And the very next thing, Peter is led to, in Acts chapter 10, a God-fearing Gentile named Cornelius. And Peter walks up and is in his entire household. And these entire bunch of Gentile dogs and sinners repent and receive the true gospel. Not only do they repent and receive the true gospel, but the Holy Spirit, who is now the covenantal sign of circumcision, because God circumcises the heart by his Spirit— falls upon them, and they're all amazed. But there is something that's happening here in this act of Jewish racism towards those dogs of the Gentiles, those dogs of the false circumcision, those Gentile brothers that are absolute dogs that Peter understood in ceremonial law, he is not obligated, nor does he have the right to dine with them, to eat with them, to drink with them. Listen to Acts 10.28. Peter understood this well. Acts 10.28, and he said to them, you yourselves, and he's speaking directly to Cornelius, know how unlawful it is for Jews to associate with or to visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. And now he asked them, why have you sent for me? So Cornelius goes in, the entire household of Cornelius gets saved, all these people with Cornelius get saved, and the, the gospel goes to the Gentiles. You see, the Lord used the vision of unclean food for Peter, of the ceremonial Jewish law customs that once separated the Jews and the Gentiles to show that the gospel would go forth to the Gentiles. And the Lord, through the gospel, was breaking down the dividing wall of hostility that once existed between Jew and Greek. And he understood this for the people of God. And listen, this trace trace is absolutely back to the establishment of Israel as the people of God as early as Abraham. As early as Abraham. You see, the people of God were always blessed to be a blessing. They're always to be a blessing. The gospel to the Gentiles has always been on the heart of God. As early as the call of Abraham in Genesis 12, listen to this. Now the Lord said, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. Now the Lord said to Abram, before he gives him the name Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and who dishonors you I'll curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is what Peter completely forgot in the midst of all this was the covenantal promise that through the line of abraham one of the greatest forefathers of the nation of israel that the entire reason for the existence of israel is that all the nations through this tiny rogue oppressed people would come the savior of the world and by that all of the nations of the world would be blessed And that person that comes through that line is none other than the risen and the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ himself. Peter forgot. Peter forgot. Out of fear of, of condemnation from the circumcision party, out of fear of his freedom being compromised. This is why Paul goes into the whole thing. If you who were a Jew dines with Gentiles and acts like a Jew, how can you tell the Jews to act like Gentiles? It is a blatant show of segregation and racism on Peter's part. And I hate to say it, and it breaks my heart to say it, but one of the most segregated timeframes in the United States today was on Sunday mornings from 9 to 12. Sometimes I wonder if, like Peter, we forget the gospel. Sometimes, like Peter, I wonder if we really are grace amnesiacs. Meaning that we have forgotten the goodness and the mercy of God and how he saved us single-handedly and will not be needing our help. You and I, our hearts are idol-making factories in which we run to, we run to, we run to and we believe the gospel but for everyone else around us it's a yeah but it's a yeah jesus but in order to to dine with us this has got to happen and you've heard it in different phrases cleanliness is next to godliness that's in the bible it's not in the bible God helps those who helps themselves. That's in the Bible. It's not in the Bible. Listen to me. The Bible is not a record of the blessed good. The Bible is an account of the blessed bad. The fact that God in his mercy would even give the people of God the story of his people and his redemptive work through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ when we all stand condemned is testimony to the fact that God saves sinners single-handedly. And we forget because we forget grace and we forget the gospel. It would be like us in this community placing on our Hispanic and Latino brothers and sisters who are here. In order to join this community, English has to be your first language. Or for African American brothers and sisters, in order to be a part of this church, you have to register as a Republican. Let that sink in because what is occurring right now in the Galatian church with Paul's rebuttal of Peter is no different. It's no different. You want to be a part of the covenantal people of God? That Jesus death, burial, and resurrection thing is cool. That message that Paul's preaching is cool, but it's incomplete because you've got to be circumcised in order to be a covenantal people of God. And it snowed under, and it snowed under, and it snowed under, and they forgot simply one thing that the law was never designed for you to live out in its entirety because it will lead you to your end. The law is designed to reveal sin, to show you the perfection of this holy God who is completely righteous, completely just, completely other, and is dedicated to stamping out sin. And that law shows you, it's on display in your own heart, that we cannot keep it. You see, the law is for the hard-hearted and the gospel is for the broken-hearted. And the law of God in all its perfection is designed to lead a man to his end. Because you see yourself for who you truly are and you see God for who He truly is and you will never live up to that standard of perfection. You see, like Peter... We forget the gospel. We are grace amnesiacs. Remember, we talked about earlier, that orthodoxy, what we believe, should always inform our orthopraxy or how we live. We have to get this right. And Paul understood we had to get this right because if the Jerusalem council had not gone in the way that Paul had wanted to go in his defense of the gospel, we likely would be standing here today with two separate, very distinct, very different religions. You would have those who trumpeted grace and grace alone, and you would have those who trumpeted Jesus plus. And Jesus plus nothing is everything. Jesus plus extra is heresy. The gospel minus Jesus is heresy. And so we have to walk that beautiful doctrinal truth that grace and grace alone saves. And this is where Paul is leading us at this point. He has used Peter's illustration. He has dismantled Peter in his entirety for his hypocrisy. The Gentiles are now welcome into the fold of God and the same truth for the Jews, is now available to the Gentiles. And that is this. And this is the crux of not only the book of Galatians, but this will be the crux of Paul's entire line of theology. He can't stop writing about it. He can't. Romans... Galatians, Ephesians, and if, he, if, you have, if you are wondering about your identity in Christ, go home, open up Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, realize that Paul in the Greek is just one huge run-on sentence. He's just so overcome with passion that he can't shut up about the grace of God to us. And if you are struggling with identity as a child of God about the grace of Christ for you, go home, crack open your Bible, read Ephesians 1, 3 through 14, 25 times to yourself aloud. And every time it says, I substitute your name. And you will get a pretty good feeling pretty quickly how the Lord Jesus feels about you. How God the Father himself views you in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because Paul hinged his entire theology of the gospel of grace on one thing. And that is this, justification and justification alone. So what is justification? Justification means to be declared legally right by God. Remember that law thing we were talking about that we're all condemned by? Justification means that you needed a substitute, that God the Father sent Jesus the Son to substitute his life for your life, That on the cross, he took your name. Every believer sitting in this room today, for those whose hearts are being stirred in affection towards salvation, your name to the cross today. He died specifically for your sins. He robbed you of all of your sin, and you got all of his righteousness. And that's justification. You have been declared legally right by God the Father, who is holy, perfect, and just, who must condemn sin and kill sin and be about the business of killing sin. And he substituted Jesus' life for your life. It's the great exchange. Jesus got all of your sin, and you got all of his righteousness. Every bit of it. That's why Paul in in 2 Corinthians 5, 21 says this. He says that God the Father made him, Jesus the Son, who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God. And this is Paul's whole crux in the remaining of the chapter. Galatians 2, 16 Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. See Peter's reaction and rebuke by Paul earlier that we just read in Galatians 11 through 14. You can't justify yourself by works of the law. The law is crushing perfection. How much work is work enough to be done, to be pleased in the eyes of God? And there's a deeper level in that too. How much of this is about your own self-righteousness? How much of your working to please God isn't really about pleasing God at all, but to show how awesome you are? And I've got news for all of us in this room, we're not awesome. I'm not awesome. On a good day, I might be 5'7", and I tell people all the time, I'm 5'9", I'm a mountain of a man, right? I've got 22 packs when I need to lose 50 pounds, right? I'm not awesome. And the reason why we do those things is we don't see ourselves clearly in the gospel. We are looking for something of our own self-righteousness to add to justification, which God has already freely given. And he gives it freely and in abundance. Justified by works of the law. As of the Jerusalem Council, it is evidence that the early church fathers and apostles rejected that the notion that works based salvation, observation of the ceremonial food laws, and circumcision was necessary for salvation. They flat rejected it. How do we know? Because they did not require Titus to be circumcised, they did not require Titus or Paul to follow the ceremonial food laws established by the Jews, which, by the way, Jesus came to fulfill. He's filled them. He's very clear about that in Matthew five seventeen. He doesn't abolish the law. What he does in the heart of the Christian is he reestablishes you as a perfect law abider because of Jesus' substitute for you. He sees us in Jesus because he has filled us with his Holy Spirit, and he sees you and I, the Christian, as though we had never transgressed the law. I don't know about you, but that is good news for a heart that is addicted to self-righteousness and performance. And that's me. I'm always looking to add my own label to help Jesus save me, and Jesus will have none of it. He'll have none of it. Because at the end of the day, my righteousness, like Isaiah says in Isaiah 64, 6, I have become like one who is unclean, and all of my righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. I will fade like a leaf from my iniquities, like the wind, it will take me away. If you want to know what Isaiah is talking specifically about here, I won't go into gross detail. Come see me afterwards. We'll have a larger conversation. But all of my righteousness is like filthy rags before the Lord of hosts who created the world. This God who hung the stars in the sky, who knows them by name, and considers those things a plaything. I stand before Him. I see His righteous requirement through the law. I see His utter perfection. I see my utter sinfulness, and I am undone. Which, by the way, is the story of all the prophets in the Old Testament. I see God for who He is. I see myself for who I am, and I will never measure up will never measure up. Ephesians 2 says this. It doesn't say that I was just lost in all this or I was just finding my way around. It says I was dead. In my transgresses, my transgressions, in my sin, in my shame, in my brokenness. And the last time I checked, the only thing dead men are good for being is dead. They can't talk to you. They can't write you letters. They can't give you a phone call. They're in an utterly helpless state of death. And that was you and I, because we are bound by the perfect and holy God. And our sin and our depravity is revealed by this law that we will never keep. There is no amount of performance. There is no amount of self-righteousness. There is no amount of anything I bring to the table that God will be pleased with. And that's good news for the weary. Because you can stop the performance. You can stop trying to earn God's favor. Why would you earn something that you already have if you're in Christ? I love what Paul David Tripp has to say here. He says this. He said, you could obey God from this point perfectly for a thousand years, and it will never move the needle of his love for you. Never. Why? Because he has justified you in Jesus. And Paul's going to go on and break this down even further. Even further in the text. He's going to say, but it's through faith in Christ, okay? So we have also believed in Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ, not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Listen to me. We do not depend on our past, our present, or future works-based righteousness to save us. We depend solely on the finished work of Jesus to save and to keep us. Our past is forgiven, our present forgiven, our future secure. We are hemmed in by Christ's justifying work. Our past justification being declared right from our past and our future justification in the present, we are pushed by the past, we are pulled by the future, we are hemmed in by justification of Christ. It is that perfect, it is that succinct, it doesn't need anything else added to it. Jesus has our past, he has our future, and that secures us in the present. And that is the whole crux of Paul's argument of justification. Grace and grace alone is the fact that Jesus took your place and he gave us all of his all of our righteousness, all of his righteousness. He took our sin and we got our righteousness. That his righteousness, that is justification, and there will be no earning of grace, for grace is fully given in the gospel for all of life. All of your life is hemmed in by this one who came and gave his life for you. Your good works will not save you. You could obey Jesus perfectly for the next 1,000 years. You'll never move the needle of God's love for you. This is the crux of Paul's theology. And it allows him to go on to say this in verses 19 and 20. For through the law I died to the law so that to God I might be alive. What Paul's getting at is that might seem a little bit obscure, but he's saying this. I've done everything I can do through the law. Look at Paul's outline of perfection in Philippians 3 if you get the chance. Born of the tribe of Benjamin, Circumcised the eighth day, a Jew of the Jews, studied the law under the highest people that the law had to offer from a Jewish and Pharisaical tradition. Paul's done it all. And yet, in Philippians 3 7 through 11, Paul would say that all these things that were gained to me, I now consider them loss for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Why? Because none of that matters. We all come with our pedigree, just like the prodigal son. Just like the prodigal son. We all come with our pedigrees and our yeah buts and our means to justify ourselves. And what Jesus is saying and what Paul is saying in Galatians 2.20, that I've been crucified with Christ, you have died to all of your self-righteousness. There's no more law-keeping. There's no more adding to the gospel. The gospel is pure It is Jesus who takes your place. He takes your sin, and you get his righteousness. That is the gospel. He lived a perfect life that you could never live. He paid a debt that you would never be able to pay, and he claimed you as his own. That's good news for the weary heart. That's good news for we as Americans who are always stuck on the treadmill of performance. That's good news for the people of God for He is creating one people, a new man in the person, the work of Jesus Christ. Verse 21, I do not nullify the grace of God for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. And he's just reiterating what he's already broken down. I do not nullify the grace of God by living by justification, by grace through faith alone. God has declared me legally righteous. Not the law, not what the Gentiles or the Judaizers do in adding to the Gentiles. The pure truth of the gospel is that Jesus saves and he saves single-handedly and he will not need your help. You see, grace and grace alone, like Luther, will free and set the heart held captive by performance ablaze. It will the entire reason that you and I are here as Protestants worshipping in the United States as a free people and as a free country as brothers and sisters made up from every tribe, every nation, every tongue in this place is because of Paul and Paul's influence on Luther with justification by grace through faith alone your performance will not save you Only the pure, unadulterated gospel in its purest form, that salvation comes by faith and faith alone through the finished work of Jesus on your behalf of the loan, will save you. That is what Jesus meant by the it is finished of the gospel. Listen, the it is finished of the gospel means it is finished. It's done. Past justified. Declared legally righteous in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. You are perfect before God. Present Justified. Repentance of sin, justification is our whole basis for repentance. Repentance of sin, justification. Future justified. You are secure. You are secure. I wanna, I've been struggling with whether or not to close with this quote, but I'm going to close with it. And it's going to assault some of your senses, okay? But I think, I think, let me, let me rephrase that. I know that this was the place Luther found himself. That Luther found himself in the dusty cellar with the original language and the original text when he ran across Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and found justification by grace through faith alone is the only means necessary for salvation. I have a feeling that Luther found himself in this place. This is pure, unadulterated, 200 proof grace. All right? Yes, 200 proof grace. 200 proof grace. Not altered, not distilled, pure gospel. Listen. The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, of bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture, one sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Word of the Gospel. After all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat out announcement that the saved were home before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, certainly no ginger ale, neither goodness, nor badness, nor the flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. That was Robert Farrar Kappen between noon and three, pages 114 through 115. John Dink goes on to say this, "...sola gratia, grace alone, was not merely a leaning of the Reformation, it was a pillar. The Reformers trumpeted God's grace as the only Christian method with no compromise." The gospel was being unleashed again, not reinvented, but rediscovered. The unending love of God, freely given to the undeserving. The truth, so scandalous, so surprising, our hearts have to be sitting down to hear it. God saves sinners single-handedly. He will not be needing our help. In fact, diluting the gospel with our own help is precisely why grace ceases to amaze us. So busy trying to help Jesus help us, we hardly ever taste his gift and we remain unchanged and unmoved by it. Over time, our blended, balanced, watered-down cup of grace leaves us cynical and sober. We want so desperately to mix in some of our rule-keeping, our own performance, we give anything to add something of our own label, but it never turns out as we had hoped. We start to feel like we can't keep up with our end of the bargain. We feel as though we failed, but What if we don't need our own label? What if Jesus kept our end of the bargain for us? Those who are broken and bold enough to ask the questions find themselves seated at tables with smiling sinners too drunk on grace to remember the rules and yet they all seem to know them by heart. We've served glass upon glass and something happens. The gospel becomes the power of God and the wisdom of God. The power of God because we taste something strong enough to save us. The wisdom of God because we taste something good enough to change us. Amen. It is all grace. Paul, in his entire theology, the crux of his message is justification by grace and grace alone. By faith and grace. You are declared by God Christian if you are in Jesus today. If you are in Christ, you are declared legally righteous before God the Father, for he accepted Jesus' substitutionary atonement on your behalf and has declared you good and declared you right and declared you holy and declared you loved and adopted and redeemed. Everything that Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 says is true, is true of you for those who aren't in Christ and maybe you're hearing the gospel message for the first time the opposite of justification is condemnation let me be very clear about this Romans 5 states that if we are not in Christ we are enemies of God but this God who justifies through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and covers the Christian sin for those who reject and continue to reject it is condemnation because God is holy and perfect and righteous and just his condemnation is just And I'm begging you and I'm pleading with you because grace has to be drunk straight. He will take you as you are. And he will never leave you there because he loves you. It is all of grace. It is all of grace. It is all of grace. grace. Let's pray that I'm going to invite Drew up to close for us. Jesus, we love you. We are so grateful for your mercy and your grace to us. That you have given us more than we could ever need and deserve in the gospel message. That God the Father, you justify us, you declare us legally right through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That we have no remorse, we have no fear of condemnation, for we are caught up in Christ. And Lord, would you right now begin to work in us, begin grace to have its rhythms in our hearts to remove any self-righteousness that is within us that we cling to, that we run to, that we look towards to save us because it can. not Only the gospel and the pure gospel message of grace alone can save us. Lord, let grace assault our senses in this place this morning. Lord, for those who are convinced that their self-righteousness will save them, Will you crush them under the perfection of the law? That's what it's designed to do. Would you lead them to their end? But Lord, for those who are brokenhearted, for those like me, who are seated at the table of grace, But are the beggars at the foot of the table of grace just waiting for crumbs? Would you give us grace? Would you break our hearts? Would you convict us? Lord, we are but beggars leading other beggars to bread in this place this morning. Would you lead our hearts to the bread of life? We love you and we are grateful. Christ, we pray.